Welcome to Work Matters, a podcast where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. My name is Thomas Bertels. I'm the founder of PurposeWorks Consulting and the host of this podcast. My guest today is Louisa Raab. Louisa is a coaching consultant who specializes in making the soft factors of culture and leadership tangible and actionable through data and experience. Her career includes 20 years in international finance, and she has spent the last 10 years working with companies and individuals on their culture journey. Louisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's really wonderful to see you here today. So today our topic is culture. Uh, when it comes to creating an effective organization, culture obviously plays a critical role. As Ben Horowitz put it, culture determines what happens when nobody's looking. Leaders often realize that in order for their organization to succeed in the long run, the culture needs to change. So we want to explore the topic today and see what leaders can do to influence and shape culture. So Luisa, let's start with definitions. What is culture and why does it matter? Well, I think you actually nailed it up front. Culture is this, this, this set of behaviors which are expected of members of a team or a department or an organization in order for those people to fit in. So you know what it's like in a new place. There are unwritten rules uh, which you have to feel out in order not to be the odd one. You have to work out what's expected, even though it's not explicitly stated anywhere. That's the world of culture that we're talking about. It's these unwritten rules of behavior that sort of people have to abide by in a corporate or team setting. Our mission at Purpose Works is to make work more productive, meaningful, valuable. How do you see the connection between work design and culture? It's a good question. So I, th I think critically, we know that good work design enables productivity. And, and people want to do meaningful, impactful, uh, valuable work. We don't go to work because we desperately want to sort of kowtow to someone further up the hierarchy or, you know, in reverse play Machiavellian power games ourselves. We also don't want to sit in a corner and push decisions away from us because we're afraid of making a mistake or something. We, we don't want that. We may have it because of the culture of the environment that we're working in, but it's not what we like. So, we go to work because we want to interact with interesting, empowered, supportive people and solve engaging problems. So process and politics should be things that work for everybody without being layered over with sort of confusing cultural norms that work in a counterproductive fashion. That's, that's where I feel the connection is, that they're a symbiosis of one another and they go hand in hand. So you worked a lot in financial services. That's a, an industry that had, you know, its, it's fair share of scandals and, and losses from, from Wells Fargo to JP Morgan's London Whale to, to rogue traders and so forth. And yet the financial services is one of the most regulated industries in, in, in the world. So what's gone wrong in, in that industry and, and what role does culture play in all of this? It's a really interesting question. And actually, it's the reason for me for why I started out on this journey around culture. I personally was very frustrated sitting in the legal and compliance function as a chief operating officer, overseeing both the impact internally on our compliance, ergo control in theory offices, and what the regulators from the outside in were trying to tell us. So, 
for me, finance has always been and continues to be full of really intelligent, committed, rational people. And I understand the need for regulation fully, but where we have gone wrong is we've almost removed the capacity and even the need for people in finance to think about their decisions because every decision has a regulatory rule or a rule-based foundation to it. Fundamentally, financiers barely need to think about whether it's the right decision or not. It's just a question of whether they're allowed to do it or not. And that takes away perspective. That often removes the banker from thinking through the implications. When we talk about culture and finance, ultimately what we want is a risk intelligent culture rather than a culture of compliance. But regulation has forced us into this regulation, uh, this compliance culture that means people no longer think for themselves. So I do understand financial institutions really walking this sort of a tightrope between the two sides of common sense and regulation and controls, but ultimately what's winning out consistently is, is regulation. So you get people who have to follow the rules, but they don't necessarily understand why and they're not invested. So we have a complete disconnect. This risk intelligent culture can't flourish. It, it can't exist. Where do we pull back? If we pull back on regulations, it feels like a free-for-all in finance. But if we don't give them enough space to develop a culture which understands the importance of risk and the compliance and the balance to the customers, we're never going, we're never going to sort of wind back to a more enlightened uh, state for financial services. It shouldn't always just be there is a rule, therefore we have to follow the rule because people naturally want to be intelligent. So they're going to try and find different ways to appreciate the rule rather than understand the end context or end perspective is really around the end client and the risks. What can you do to understand your organization's culture better? And, and how do you know when the culture is a problem? I think there's a lot of things that you can do to um, know your culture and, and understand. The first place I would start is by understanding what you're trying to measure and what you mean by culture. So there's lots of different ways of talking about what culture is, but I'm enamored much more with a science-based, rigorous, proven model for really measuring and understanding culture, which was developed by Rob Cook and Clayton Lafferty of Human Synergistics 50 years ago. So their model of culture analyzes constructive behaviors and defensive behaviors, both in sort of a passive and aggressive form. And then it goes to the heart of the matter by measuring across more than 30 drivers What are the causes of the behavior? So we're actually linking real world things with something that we feel is perhaps less tangible, i.e. behaviors and culture. Something's not written down. So a simple example might be a company could use quite a lot of rewards and punishment or, you know, be quite strong on, you know, the consequences of not doing something right, a bonus system, for example. And that could lead Uh, very clearly in terms of behaviors to unhealthy levels of competition or sort of oppositional behavior, or in some cases, even the avoidance of making decisions because you, you fear the consequences. And, and we want to also look all the way through to the outcomes to understand what the result is of those drivers leading to those behaviors. You know, if you have a company that feels like that, perhaps people are much more stressed and 
probably less motivated. Um, they're more likely to leave and perhaps they don't perceive the quality to be as good as it could be. So for me, the, a good starting place is trying to understand the whole organisation through the lens of culture, but with real tangible, um, measurable pieces to support it. This diagnostic that, that you're using is, is both, I guess, a vehicle to understand so the key drivers within the culture, but then also to understand if there are potential issues and, and, and pitfalls. Yeah, exactly. So trying to get to the bottom of whether there's a problem or not, you, you really want to look to understand outcomes because very often organizations will be very successful in spite of a poor culture. And, and only when the economic conditions around them change, perhaps they're highly successful because they're one of the few competitors in the market, or there is a particular surge in demand for this particular type of service or product, it's going to mask underlying cultural issues, which eventually will lead to poorer outcomes. And the poorer outcomes could be at an organizational level. So you might get poorer end results or poorer quality, but fundamentally it also can be at the individual level where you've got burnout and stress and lack of motivation, or positively you've got people who really enjoy what they do and intend on contributing to the success of that company. So you you want to make sure that you're, you're measuring and understanding different pieces of what's driving the outcomes for your organization, especially with a culture lens, so that you're already there understanding your culture, understanding how to tweak it before you run into difficulties and then try and have this, you know, sort of emergency aid package running back through the organization, which everyone's going to feel is inauthentic. So how do you actually go about changing culture? What does it actually mean in, in the real world? That's a really good question because a lot of people feel that culture is something that just is and it's not something that you can directly affect. So I would give an example here by saying if, and you see this a lot in finance, for example, uh, leaders say, I want people to take more accountability and stop pushing decisions upwards. They say that and they just expect things are going to change. But you have to look at why people uh, feel that it's right or that somehow they're expected to avoid responsibility. What's actually driving that? To get to those levers, let me give you uh, another analogy. If a song is being created in a mixing studio, for me, the song is the culture. That's the, the thing that you feel and see, but it's quite ephemeral. It's not something that's easy to define. It's got, it's got notes, and it's, but it's a mixture of all sorts of things. And you want that to be as good as possible, obviously, then you're going to have to work at the sound mixing studio. You're going to have to work with those fader bars up and down. So if a song, for example, has got too much bass um, or perhaps there's too many rewards and punishments built into the system, you're going to want to tone that back or you want to go and find, find a different balance and you're going to keep on needing to adjust that till the sound sounds right, until the song sort of has a better quality around it. So perhaps it could also involve something around communication and how you communicate successes and failures. All of those things that you do around rewards and punishments and communication might actually lead to less, for example, competitive behaviours, unhealthy competitive behaviours and more supportive behaviours. So Critically, you've got to understand the levers that are driving the behaviors. And those levers are real and actually highly measurable. And if we, you know, use a diagnostic to look at them and, and see where they sit, we can say, ah, okay, 
there is a causal relationship between, for example, compensation and competition as a behavior, then we know where we can go. And that starts to break down sort of the myth of what is culture. And does that, does that sort of answer your question? Because it's a really big, gnarly question, actually, how do you go about changing culture? How you challenge and, and adapt and improve on a, on a culture because you're actually taking smaller pieces. It's not a wholesale, let's make everyone feel more accountable. What are like some of the, the, the pitfalls or downfalls that, that you see people make as they go about culture change? Yeah, there are many, obviously, because culture feels like such a difficult topic. I think companies and, and leaders can very quickly become overwhelmed if they don't have the right support and guidance to understand actually what culture is. It feels too big and it feels too insurmountable. It's too hard. It's too much. I don't know how to fix this. This is too much of a big ask. So I think that's one thing. So having the right kind of partner with the right kind of expert that could demystify this intangible, fluffy world of culture is very important. Another problem often is, you know, people start off with a whole lot of enthusiasm and they run out of steam. Probably there's a leadership change or there's a new priority that pops up that's sort of perceived to be more important. It's more the hour of the day or there's more shareholder pressure for something else. You also see a lot of people saying, that they, as one individual or one leader, can't really impact the culture. So why bother engaging? It's They're not going to do it. Other things have to happen first, and then maybe they will come along. So it's a buy-in question. How do, you, how do you engage people? And a lot of people still have a very baked-in assumption that the culture will be what the culture will be, and they you can't shift it. You can't actually change people's behaviors. This is a competitive organization. We're always going to be competitive. We're always, you know, it's an alpha kind of a place. And besides, things are working out for me. So why should I, you know, why should I shift anything? There's layers of challenge within an organization, starting from sort of the thinking of why we're doing this all the way down to very much embedded at an individual level. None of them are insurmountable, but it's worthwhile being aware that for different companies, more of those or less of those are present. I guess that also ties to the point of like there's not just one culture for an organization, right? I mean, there are some common characteristics, but there are also microcultures within functional areas and supports, right? Very much so. Very much so. The microcultures talks to not the cult of personality so much as the individuals that lead those areas. So you can have extremely resilient leaders looking after teams who are either very good at putting up an umbrella and, and, and protecting their team from a, a culture beyond their area, which is less than helpful, perhaps sometimes even destructive, or some of those leaders can also actually make it more difficult for the people underneath them to work positively within what is otherwise a very constructive culture beyond that team. So it, it goes both ways. You can have lots of challenges and, and opportunities just because of individuals, because of leaders. What, what advice do you have for leaders that, that have just like a, um, see the needs to understand their culture better and, and possibly adjust it to be more in line with, with the requirements uh, that are being placed in it by the outside world, right? I mean, just take an example, at least in the US now, right, the whole topic of diversity inclusion really last year has come to the forefront, call it Black Lives Matter or, or whatever it is, right? So in, in many organizations that really 
forces, I think, a conversation around these topics and, and a change in, in the way decisions get made, right? Whether it's hiring or, or whatever it might be. Um, what, what advice do you have for leaders that that's like saying, we got to change, how do I get started? What can I do? Uh, it's a great question. And I think the first place that uh, we should start is with self-reflection. It's a journey that anybody can take. It's the genesis of all change or growth. And, you know, if we enable it through the use of some tools that help us actually understand our impact and we couple it perhaps with the reflections of others in some form of 360 feedback and we lean on the support of some kind of coach or mentoring group, that self-reflection becomes very powerful. It We start to reveal our blind spots. So we could in fact be that leader who is perhaps preventing a positive culture beyond our team from permeating into our team. We could be um, one that's preventing people from, you know, fulfilling all of their expectations because we have some sorts of control issues. And interestingly, we think we're very good at hiding our fears and weaknesses and frustrations from others, but everybody sees them. That's the truth, unfortunately, especially when we're working. And even if we're working in this sort of a, a digital, uh, physically removed sense, people still can see beyond the veneer that we put up as individuals and as leaders. So investing time in this being a little bit uncomfortable and being a little bit out of our control zone that we're usually in, it's never going to be a waste of time. That that reflection opportunity is the biggest opportunity for leaders to bring something more to the table for their people, for themselves, and for their organization. So even right as, as now the pandemic seems to subside in many places and, and organizations as people come back, some of them keep saying, please continue working from home. Others might adopt the hybrid model. What do you think are the longer-term implications on, on cultures in these organizations? I think we're going to have to rely more on understanding where we are with that fader bar because we're not in an office environment as, as, as members of those teams. It's not always intuitive to pick up on what the feel is. You know, how are people feeling frustrated? Are people feeling overworked? Are people feeling like they're having to do more to succeed? Because we're losing that touch, we're going to have to, I feel, be more aware of what we're actually doing that drives the behaviours from an organisational perspective. So how are we communicating with our people? How are we hiring? How are we integrating them into the organisations? How are we understanding how we vest power you know, across different structures and different individuals. All of those things push through to the behaviours which ultimately define our culture. And uh, having an, an increased sensitivity to measure and understand those things in a digital, physically separated environment, I think will be critical. Wonderful. Louisa, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. And, and dear listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, please check out the other episodes uh, as well. We post postcards every other week and uh, look forward to your feedback and engagement. Thank you, Thomas. Great fun. Look forward to doing it again.